Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Firm Returns Weekly. It's been a pretty eventful week this week. Um, we had the interim results from Tiny Build, got updates on Warner Brothers Discovery, Aviva, Taylor Maritime. So yeah, let's just let's get straight into it. I'll uh, just share my screen. Um, no. the top okay so um starting with aviva we heard this week that aviva is going to be acquiring aig's uk protection business for a total consideration of 460 million pounds and this is in line with their strategy of pursuing capital light growth so yeah that this brings in an additional 1.3 million individual protection customers and 1.4 million group protection customers um, using AIG UK's numbers from the end of last year. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm just coming off the tail end of a cold, so there might be a little bit of coughing. Um, yeah, this looks quite positive. I think they're looking at... Um, a, a, they're forecasting a double-digit IRR from it. And it, yeah, it just sort of expands there. I think this would individual protections. This would probably come under their UK general insurance um, segment. So uh, yeah, that's that's really what they're trying to grow, rather than the things like the um, the life insurance side of things, which requires a lot more capital to be locked up, like. Um, annuities and things like that all that kind of stuff requires a lot more capital to be invested whereas if you're just doing on a general insurance stuff has a smaller smaller capital um, requirement because it's just rotated year after year um and so should help to boost the <coughs> so roi um for the for the overall business as we make a sh shift towards the uh the capital light stuff um right yeah so we then had a couple of updates from Warner Bros Discovery one was the um Mortal Kombat 1 so that came out uh, the prior week but we now have the data for that first week in terms of how well it did in this just the UK but how well it did in the physical um sales so it it came in at number one, uh, which is great. So it was the most, the highest selling physical game. Um, so it's physical like uh, Xbox, PlayStation, Switch um, copies. Um, and what was quite cool to see was that Hogwarts Legacy, which has been <laughs> dominating for most of the year, I think, um, held the second spot. So we actually had uh, like a one-two from all of us discovery games in terms of the best-selling physical games in uh, in the UK, which is uh, which is cool to see. So the other piece of good news, I, I suppose, um, from Warner Brothers Discovery was the the end of the writers' strike. So there's been a a tentative deal struck with the WGA. Writers Guild of America, um, 
which has meant that the strikes are going to end. I don't think they're fully going back to work yet, um, but they're not picketing anymore. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's still just one, one, and it ended up being the riders' strike ended up being a little bit less impactful than the actors' strike. Obviously, the actors are um, have a, a much larger impact on being on filming um, than writers did. They were the writers, obviously, still. Uh, had a major impact but yeah it's a good stepping stone on the way and hopefully the SAG AFTRA which I'm not going to try and remember what that acronym stands for but it's the actors um, union anyway <coughs> they're, they're still their strikes are still ongoing but hopefully given that the rights have now agreed to a deal the actors might be might be next it looks like both parties are. I think the writers got most of what they asked for, so it might end up being that the studios are just going to cave and um and give the actors most of what they wanted as well, um, which might not be a a bad thing. Um, a lot of it resolve revolves around just a, it's it's an adjustment to the new structure of the business with they're not getting the same they haven't been getting the same residuals from uh streaming as they used to from like dvd and blu-ray sales so it's been it's basically just transitioning to this to a more of a a streaming focus model probably going to end up meaning that the prices for streaming products um rationalize a bit more over time so obviously they've been quite a bit lower because they haven't been able to pay, they haven't been needing to pay uh, these sort of residuals to actors and um, writers and other um, members of the production team uh, for successful TV shows and so on. So it's now that they are transitioning to a model where they're going to receive these residuals, you can probably expect the uh, you know the pricing to get a bit more rational in terms of how much people are paying for their monthly subscriptions to. Netflix or Max or whatever. Um, but yeah, and there's the other little thing that's a potential sort of like a tail risk to be concerned about is that the <laughs> the support the the union for the support workers, which are like the cameramen and women, prop team, sound light, and all that kind of stuff, physical effects and everything. Um, their contract is due to be renewed next summer. So I think August next year or something. So we've got uh, a potential another sort of tail risk that just as things are starting to get back in the, and all the disruption from um, the scheduling and all that kind of stuff, because they've basically got to try and get all these movies that have been pushed back now. They've got, I don't know, five, six months worth of films that need to be um, squeezed in to, to the existing schedule for, for next year as well. Uh, so... Yeah, it's quite going to be a big impact anyway. But if we suddenly have another strike from another part of the thing, yeah, that's going to be not going to be great. But hopefully, hopefully that's that won't happen. But it's just something to be aware of. And moving on to Taylor Maritime Investments, they've announced the uh, the Grindrod, which they own. I think about ninety percent of um, is 
going to acquire the commercial and technical managers of the TMI fleet, which were actually companies previously set up by the management of TMI, um, Edward Buttery and and so on. Um, And that was TMI was basically they transferred quite a lot of the fleet that they were managing previously. They sold them. It was all sold to TMI um, as the sort of the seed portfolio. So, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of a related party transaction as a re- result of that. They do they do still own and and um, I don't think they day to day manage the the commercial and technical managers anymore. Which is actually called Taylor Maritime, I believe, and Tamar, Tel Tamar. I'm not sure about Tamar whether they own a stake in that one. Um, but those two, those two companies basically are going to be acquired by Grindrod, um, and certainly the Taylor Maritime one um, is going to mean some payment is going to um, whatever the ownership stake was going to. Uh, Edward Buttery, the CEO of both TMI and Grin, um, and other members of the management that have stakes in it. Um, but yeah, I'll get a little bit into that in a second. But just in terms of the how, what they're paying for them, so the total consideration um, is approximately what well, they're estimating it, baking it based on what they think the performance will be um because there's some contingent consideration component um but the, what they're estimating the total consideration is going to be 11.75 million dollars um but up to a maximum of 13 and a half if if all if they met the absolute maximum performance uh conditions and this is going to be two million dollars of cash up front uh with the rest being paid in shares over two years and again Dependent on performance and so on. Uh, but yeah, I being a related party transaction, I was initially wary. Um, but I I reached out to investor relations uh, with my sort of concerns, and it does seem like a a logical move commercially. They they did go into quite a lot of detail about the justification for it, and um, I asked specifically as well why if this was such a Good move. If this was, if it was necessary for them to actually own them, why hadn't TMI acquired their commercial intelligence managers before, uh, before they um, acquired Grindrod? Um, and they said because the TMI is an investment trust, that wouldn't have been possible. That structure doesn't allow them to actually carry it, directly carry out any ship management functions. They're very just an entirely an investment vehicle as an investment trust. Um, and Grindrod, which is a company that is able to do stuff like that, has its own sort of subscale um, management function, um, fleet management function in place. And so it kind of seems like a natural thing for them to bring in-house the TMI ones and then to actually combine them at the Grindrod level. So it does make it does make commercial um, sense. And obviously there's the restrictions for doing it at the TMI level, so that's why it has to be done at Grand Run. Um, so yeah, I was I was um, certainly mollified by what I heard, and I think I think I'm happy with the transaction, and hopefully it will realise some synergies um, when 
the, we have one um, commercial and technical manager um, managing the combined fleet of both both companies will be um, there'll be some some savings there and it increases the scale of the kind of contracts they can get as well. You know, they they've got a much bigger fleet. They can start pitching to sort of bigger blue chip companies and things like that. So yeah, it's uh, I think it I think it will work out. And I have to say, like, I haven't seen anything, um, nothing that's happened, nothing that, uh, even though the, there is some related party stuff going on, which is obviously makes me a little wary with with TMI. I've not seen any action thus far in my period of holding them, and I've owned them for a couple of years now. Um, nothing has been uh, sus- really suspicious. It's everything has been perfectly. Um, in favor of shareholders i think i don't think anything has been I, yeah it's hard to say because i haven't really had uh an opportunity uh, they don't really uh make the earnings calls and things like analysts that easily available i've actually reached out and i should be getting some recordings of them um to get a bit more sort of insight but i haven't really seen that much of management if you if you know what i'm saying um like you do with a lot of other companies so it's hard to sort of get a read of from they're just watching them or listening to them um how they respond to certain questions and, and all that kind of and how they vocalize it's all very well reading stuff and they do give quite good disclosure of things in writing but it's very it's it's easier to to make things you know look good in, in writing than it is to create a compelling case um vocally so uh yeah it's I think it'll be good to get a bit more of an insight from that and help to build up a bit more trust but I do think they've they have generated good value for shareholders and, and everything they've done has been rational and um good allocation of capital so far. So I've not had any cause for concern. Though obviously you do have to keep a very close eye when they're you ha- you have a company that's um that's doing these kind of related party transactions. But anyway, yeah, just the other thing to mention um is that they are refinancing and repaying um they're refinancing all of their debt and they're repaying a portion of it so this is for tmi not not for grindrod i don't think i think grindrod's debt remains um <laughs> in his existing structure um yeah they've they've replaced their revolving credit and acquisition acquisition facilities with a new rcf revolving credit facility bearing a lower interest margin and maturing in March 2027. As part of this refinancing, they'll make a net loan repayment of around $27 million, bringing the debt outstanding to $167.6 million and the debt to gross asset ratio to around 25%, which is historically, which is when in the, I think the article of association of the company or whatever they they said 25% was like their structural sort of maximum leverage they were aiming for. Um, obviously, they changed, they applied to have that change to the Grindelwald acquisition. But um, yeah, they'll be paying that down and getting back to what they've originally had in place um, as the as the limits um, set on the company. So yeah, it's it's good that they've got down to that level or projecting to get down to that level. Uh, and that's using the fleet's valuation as of the 30th of June. So the latest quarterly update. 
which was, I think, uh, $1.56 a share. And the shares are trading at about 90 cents right now. So pretty big discount to the now for that. Um, and they also, in the same note, gave a market update highlighting the approximately 74% increase in average time charter rates since their low in August, which are now sitting at $10,204 per day. This will be for the handy size uh, vessel. Um, and this is still well below the levels seen uh, in 2021 and 2022, positive compared to historic averages. So yeah, they're, they're well positioned to capture the um the uptrend right now i think their fleet the average uh charter duration is like three months or something and they've got a lot of ones that are going to be rolling over and charters are going to be ending soon so they'll be able to roll those into the higher uh rate charters so sort of just carry them through and and capture some of these these higher rates which are, which are coming back up they're still well below what they've they've been um recently they i mean they in the last year or the 20 yeah 2022 2021 it was getting up to sort of uh $20,000 it was getting really crazy the the rates had a massive spike so now it's come back down to sort of more it's still in a pretty good place compared to the historical averages 10,000 or whatever dollars per day is it's still quite good for most of the time like most of the last decade has been uh that that would have been a pretty good rate um so yeah it's it's good to in a pretty good place um but yeah it's uh hopefully we'll see a bit of a bit of up, more upside from here and they can they can capture it so moving on to the on to tiny build uh, so this there's quite a bit to cover here because we had their interim results um and i've i've got here like a a link to their their investor call on uh, with investor meet company uh, is on youtube now so you can go listen to that back there's some very good questions in there as well um and i've i did attend the analyst call as well and i've got to say the questions from the actual investors that hold the shares rather than just the professional analysts were were a lot better a lot better so um i'm uh yeah i was i was quite impressed with my fellow individual investors uh that we we definitely asked the better questions compared to the professional in quotes analysts which about half of their questions i i felt i could have answered myself so it's uh pretty uh pretty shameful really but anyway uh, let's just have a look through some of the highlights that I sort of picked out. Um, just to note that they were the results were certainly down on the prior year, and um, in some of the headline ones anyway. Uh, there be there are some components that held up pretty well, uh, as we'll see. But yeah, this is what management was guiding for. Um, they were back in the trading update around the time of the AGM or the day of the AGM, the 29th of June. They they laid out that their expectations, all these things. That's what initially caused the major drop in the share price back then. Um, but yeah, so so a lot of it is to be expected. There wasn't a great deal of new stuff other than just sort of solidifying what their guidance had been into actual real numbers. 
Um, so yeah, let's just get into some of these. So revenue fell 19% to $23.3 million compared to $28.8 million the prior year. And this is primarily due to a $5.9 million drop in development services revenue. So this is like the platform uh, revenues from like other exclusivity deals or um, just fees for having them listed on things like Game Pass or PlayStation Plus and so on. Or um, <laughs> things like um, Met, uh, Meta's Quest um, platforms and things that I have entitled listed on there or on Google Stadia when that was a thing, all that kind of stuff, these sort of different platforms. Um, but revenue from game and merchandise royalties, which is sort of like the direct-to-consumer stuff, uh, remained pretty well flat year over year. So it was 17.455 million versus 17.466 million the prior year. So pretty much flat year over year. And considering... Yeah, those those different factors. Um, the fact that the actual direct to consumer sales held up nicely um, was a positive. I, I I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Um, yeah, and they've said so. Yeah, they're expecting the for the full year the development service revenues to to remain low. But then they're not. They emphasise that, that it's not zero. They still got some things coming in. Like we know that Pigeon Simulator, for instance, is going to be coming out on Xbox launching to Xbox Game Pass at, on release and um, there's presumably some other titles that or um, revenue they're receiving from renewing things for other titles that are on there and so on. Um, so yeah, it's not gone to zero, but it has uh, what has been the source of some sort of like ex added revenue on top of the just underlying sort of growth um, is disappearing. And, and it's but the thing is, as they tried to emphasize as well, is that um, it kind of, when you've got games that are really successful, especially ones that are console-focused, like the uh, Hell and Neighbor ones, for instance, they've really done a lot better on consoles than um, elsewhere. To have those kind of games, when when they get an upfront fee from Xbox or PlayStation, whatever, um, to have the game listed on there, that kind of caps the upside. So if the game then ended up getting you know many many you know millions of of players those could have all been sales that would have generated more money overall for the company um than if they than whatever the upfront payment was from microsoft or from from sony so um it has while it then it takes away some of the certainty in some of these sort of like the flaw maybe in some of these revenues it also removes the ceiling, so you've got a you do have more upside there. So when you've got games like Streets of Rogue Two coming out next year, for instance, and which is looking, and I they did actually mention uh, in I mentioned that he didn't say very specifically, but I can I can pretty much guess which game it is because um, of the wishlist ranking. They've basically broken. Uh, it, I believe Streets of Rogue Two has broken a record for the company in terms of the most wish list that the most wish lists they've had on an upcoming release so um that's pretty incredible to see so that could be <laughs> certainly on pc um on steam that's something that we can expect um this early access launch do very well so i was kind of surprised because i thought um i i wasn't sure what potion craft had done 
um, before its launch as well. So the fact that it's presumably beaten Potioncraft, um, which did very well, did about 700,000 sales in, in early access and then um, took it comfortably over a million when it did the full version 1.0 release. Um, that's very... Uh, and then, you know, all the other platforms, we still got Switch release coming up and all the rest of it. Um, that really, to me, um, makes me think, you know, we could be looking at comfortably over a million um, sales for Streets of Rogue 2, for instance. So if they took some upfront fee, let's say, to... And yes, that could still happen on PC anyway, but let's say the Xbox uh, revenues they could have had from it uh, were maybe not a million, but sort of comp- or across consoles, maybe it's a similar sort of number overall. Um, if those had been um, locked into some upfront deal just to get them put on Game Pass, that could really have just cannibalized a lot of the the upside revenue they potentially could have had there. Um, so the fact that maybe these kind of deals are not going to happen, it might still, might still happen. They might see the potential of a game like that and go, oh, actually, we really want a piece of that. But we'll see. Uh, but I and I'm not necessarily sure whether that would be the right move from what I'm what I'm trying to say here. But um, but yeah. So to have that. Um, the upside kind of capped over. Anyway, uh, and the other thing about Streets of Rogue 2 versus something like Potioncraft um, is I believe that um, Streets of Rogue 2 were... Oh, I believe that Potioncraft was probably a third-party IP. I there's we're not, We don't know for sure, but um, I would expect the margins are going to be significantly better on Streets of Rogue 2. Um than potion graph so if we, if we did have similar success or even better success uh, given the wish list the prediction from the, the wishes and they have said that they're they able, able to very accurately predict what the sales are going to be from the wish list so on that basis um it could be could be quite promising but yeah on that looking at it like that i do think um we, we could stand to be and we could stand to make an awful lot more Money from uh, Streets of Rogue Two than it than it did from Potion Graph, which obviously was an an exceptionally selling game at the tail end of last year. Um, yeah. With that said, let's move on. So, a revaluation of the company's intangible assets was conducted, and this is where the the biggest piece of, sort of bad news I would say is, uh, resulting in the impairment of eighteen point three million dollars of capitalized software development expenses. $6.1 million of goodwill, so basically just wiping out all the goodwill, um, and $2.8 million of other intangibles. So this led to a net loss for the period of $25.283 million. Um, so yeah, we know for like the the impairments of the software development expenses, this in this included some actual like full-on cancellations of of some some games that that were in development. Uh, presumably not ones that have been announced, um, but some earlier stage titles that they decided were not uh, going to be as commercially viable. Um, and they did actually disclose in the note um, for this that they've now been using like a, a discount rate of 13% for their, for their projections of, uh, you know, to actually determine whether a project is going to be... Um, generate sufficient returns for them so it's yeah that and like a like a 
said before they're they're targeting a two x return from a project anyway, which would be if assuming that happens in a shorter. I mean that is over the game's life, but uh, often that happens in a much shorter period of time, and so represents a much higher return than that. Um, but yeah, so not not great um, to see these things, but at least now you know this is kind of rationalizing things. We're getting down to just we're cutting the chaff. We're not wasting money on projects that are going to be uh, not going to be so profitable. Where yeah, it's 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 cutting things down to and improving the efficiencies. We're getting cost efficiencies coming in here. Um, so adjusted EBITDA, which excludes impairments but includes the amortization of capitalized software development costs, came in at a loss of one point two four nine million dollars. Um, so this reflected the impact of lower revenue a less favorable revenue mix uh, with more coming from third-party titles um, <coughs> and uh, a higher amortization of capitalized software development costs, so sort of $5 million versus $3.8 million the prior year. So I would expect some of this hap- came from, uh, yeah, the some of the titles they were releasing this year. Um ended up being sort of flops early on at least. Um, so, but the immortization still, so like Farwell Pioneers as an example, um, but then the immortization still continuing unabated, doesn't really care what the uh, the revenue ends up being on on launch. It's still going to be amortized at the same rate, so the cost. So yeah, I think that's probably what's coming in here with the adjusted EBITDA. Um, so yeah, that's that's, why we're getting that bit negative, but it's uh it is expected to be positive um for the overall year. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see for that one. But I would say probably somewhat more importantly, from in terms of this the company's uh survivability and um and yeah, reduce it and, and just over general sort of cash management. Uh, the cash flow from operations held up pretty well despite the drop in revenues and that they came in at $6.289 million versus $8.811 million the prior year with $4.175 million attributable to movements and working capital as receivables built up from sales in December were paid in January. So, yeah, this was largely the... And imagine things like potion craft and stuff like that doing well and making good sales in December and, and other titles, obviously, you know, Dead Side, whatever. Um but then there'd been a 30 day delay between the a sale being made and then the platforms like Steam or Microsoft or whatever, Xbox, PlayStation, uh, then paying the actual cash to to Tiny Build, um, which pushes it into H one, even though the sales were actually made in H2 of 2022. Um, we'll get a little bit on in the future in the, in the later section about what, a, what the cash flow from operations are likely to be in the second half, um, given the guidance from management and so on. Um, but yeah, let's just have a quick look. So K 
cash and cash equivalents at the 30th of June 2023 were $14.338 million, and management has maintained its guidance for cash to be within the range of 10 to $20 million at year end. This net cash position is then expected to be maintained in 2024 as the company is determined to entirely self-finance itself, reducing development expenditure if necessary. And I've said here from this that we can expect them to be free cash flow break even by next uh, or in next year. So if they're looking to get it, if they're looking to maintain that cash level around about at least to the 10 to 20 million range, we can, it's, they're going to need to make sure their cash flow operations match their um, capex next year, uh, so which will be sort of a break even free cash flow. Um, so that's certainly, and that was that was implied. It was implied, but it also was actually addressed um, <laughs> without without actually saying they were going to say free cash flow break even. They said um, Jazz did actually say in the earnings call this is what if <laughs> we said this we said that therefore yes that implicate that implication would mean what would would mean what the question was which was about free cash flow um right and uh the, yeah on the self-financing bit though that was very that was a really big takeaway for me from the listen to the earnings calls and stuff like that was um that they have absolutely no intention of using their $35 million credit facility um, for any kind of just operations of the business. It's not going to be a structural component of the business at all. It was set up for that like unmissable M&A opportunity. If they had like a incredible opportunity and they just needed the cash for it and they didn't, and they didn't want to miss out on the, a chance just because they didn't have sufficient cash or the shares were too depressed to do, to give an equity component to it um that was the reason they uh set that facility up and they have absolutely no intention of using it to finance this or operations of the business so it was quite funny after having after them having said that and made this very clear that they they will cut down development expenditure before they resort to using any kind of debt um it was quite funny then to see some of the analysts when they updated their you know, forecast for the company to say they were going to be net debt next <laughs> next year and things like that. I was thinking, oh, God, these guys are really not <laughs> paying attention at all. And I'm sorry, but their models are not going to be better than managements with internal access to to the to all the wish lists, sales data, all that kind of stuff. They're going to have a much better uh, foresight of what they think revenues are going to be. And how they think games are going to do, and what they're going to need to do in terms of um, how much they're spending on individual projects and so on, you know. So, yeah, it was uh, it it was pretty silly to to see some of those forecasts from some analysts, um, which is but it's, it's obviously created opportunities for us. But um, the other thing, and they showed this in the slide deck. I'm I haven't got it up unfortunately, but. Um, they showed that they the distribution of they've got fifty plus projects on the go right now, um, and this is I'm guessing including porting uh, games as well and and other things like that. But they showed you just this distribution of how they've and no what single project has got more than sort of fifteen percent of the overall 
uh, spending on it. But uh, yeah, there's this big, um, just different sort of size rectangles for the different uh, weights of how much um, money is going into each into each project. It was kind of interesting to see that graphic. So you can see that in the in the earnings call. So I recommend having a look at that if you've. If, well, I recommend looking at the earnings call anyway. But that graphic was quite good to see. Uh, so yeah, talking about uh, expenditure on software development um, costs, this uh, went up in H122 um, to $16.925 million uh, versus, uh, sorry, yeah, the expenditure in H1 2023 was up on the H1 2022 at $16.925 million dollars just shy of 17 million dollars uh versus 14.245 million dollars in h1 of 2022 um but it was down on h2 of 2022 which was 21.544 million dollars so they are coming down and you could, they just showed also in this slides there a, a graph of it going up and then coming off the coming off the peak just this every half every half year just increasing increasing until now it sort of le- seems to be coming down and then leveling off and re- they're saying um yeah they're just going on this so the total software development costs for the full year are expected to be similar to those in 2022 implying so that 2022 was about 35 million dollars i think for the full year so this implies um, expenditure for H2 to be around 17 to 18 million dollars. Um, and then from this, uh, because we know that cash is um, it, it guided to remain within the 10 to 20 million dollar range, this would require operating cash flows for H2 to be at least 13 to 14 million dollars, um, compared to 10.377 million dollars in H2 of 2022. So this is we can kind of deduce what what they think the, the cash flow from operations will be in H two. So it's quite quite a nice quite a nice figure, and obviously quite a bit of this is going to come from the cost cutting they've done. So they'll be reducing the expenditure, the ongoing expenditure um, on the on the software. On, on various things but on the development of these projects they've cancelled and all the rest of it um i guess and they're going to be trying to pull down general and administrative costs as well but just overall looking to uh make things more bring down costs and then i'm getting this as well we've had a couple of quite successful games released in already in h2 punch club 2 and um i am future and then we're looking probably at hopefully broken roads will be good as well we might have level zero they've got got a quite a few other titles um for the rest of the year that would still fall within the the h2 i believe the cash would still be coming in within h2 um certainly broken roads will be november so it should be coming in before the end of the year um the cash 30 days later and so on so um yeah it's looking it, there's looking like that certainly could be achievable and that's obviously what they're what they're expecting um so after the asset impairments 
Total equity attributable to shareholders on the 30th of June 2023 was $86.572 million. Uh, compared to at the year end of 2022, it was $111.634 million. So of this total, $42.604 million comes from capitalized software development expenses, uh, which is obviously where a big portion of the write-offs came, came from. Um, and $21.079 million from purchased IP. I don't think that got much of, I don't think that got any impairment really. Um, and Goodwill is now pretty well nil. I think it's like $29,000 or something. something uh, fairly minuscule. Um, yeah, so the equity, equity there is still, yeah, I don't know. Four times the market. I don't know what the market cap is right now, but it's um it's been fluctuating all over the place. But probably something like at least three or four times the the market cap right now. So you're getting a pretty massive discount to the uh, the uh, in large part things like the. I mean, you're getting a major discount just to the capitalized software development expenses, just the just the pipeline of up, upcoming titles and the rest of it. Not to mention the earning power of the existing titles that have already been fully amortized, um, like Graveyard Keeper or what have you. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's mains, of course, very cheap. Um, finally, a couple of legal claims have been made against the company in relation to versus Evil, Evil and Red Cerberus. Um, so the versus evil one, I believe, was um it was in the right at the end here in note thirteen. So this was basically a um one of the parties that uh Tinyboard had purchased when the prior owners of versus evil was um claiming that well basically wants to have some of that contingent consideration that they they thought they think they're obviously owed and then there was another the red service one was um somebody who was providing consulting services a company um and somebody they're claiming that somebody an employee of red service misappropriated the claims confidential information while employed by red service but anyway the the um sounds probably more minor than the first one anyway but yeah, they've they don't believe there's any cause um, for concern there. Uh, they've not, and apparently it's it's not actually a, a lawsuit that's been filed. It's like it's a lower level than that, um, about as as low as it can be apparently. So uh, management has made no provision for these um, claims as it considers the probability of payment to be remote. So I think that. For the moment, I can kind of put a, a line under that, but um, but yeah, we'll we'll see whether that stance changes and when any whether any provision is required in the future. But that is just the standard part of doing business once a company gets to a certain size. These kind of legal claims do happen. Um, yeah, and you, I guess you can't you can't uh, fault the prior owners of Versus Evil for trying. <laughs> it's certainly if you. If you sold a company for a certain price and there's 
consideration in there. You're going to try and fight for it, aren't you? Um, even if you ch- even if realistically here, um, the performance didn't justify it, probably. Right. So yeah, that's um, that gives that concludes the the update here. Um, yeah, come have a I recommend having a look at the the earnings recall recording. It's particularly good. Obviously, read through the actual filing itself. There was some good stuff in the presentation and the earnings call that wasn't in the filings and particular kind of stats and stuff like I was talking about the um percentage sort of distribution amongst all the sort of 50 projects and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely worth worth watching that in as a complement to the uh sort of official filing. Uh yeah and uh go over and if you want to get these updates in your inbox directly um you can go over and subscribe for free to firm returns um dot com very easy to do it would just be up here you'd have a subscribe button um yeah so uh i'll i'll catch you all in the next update thanks for thanks for listening